It's Friday, 2nd of December, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So I wanted to start with these extraordinary events in China that we've seen over the past few weeks. We've had this record surge in COVID cases, very public displays of anger across the country with the government's zero COVID policy. And it looks as though Beijing's heard and it's trying to diffuse some of the anger with steps to maybe accommodate the virus more rather than trying to stamp it out by any means necessary. Our China team's obviously been all over the story this week and in previous weeks. But I wondered what we could say about this moment from a global macro perspective. It's a really good question. I think it's the key question at the moment. As you say, our China team have spent a lot of time looking at this. In particular, it's the issues around vaccines and the inability of getting them into the arms of vulnerable Chinese people in particular that our China team has been talking about. That's the major impediment to lifting zero COVID policies. Now you've got the protest layered on top of that. It's obviously incredibly difficult to know how all of that is going to play out. But as you say, our China Economic Service is the place to look for all of that. In terms of what it means for the the global economy, obviously a lot of focus has been on the lifting of or potential lifting of zero COVID policies. And there's some optimism around what that might mean for the outlook in 2023 for China's economy. I think we should perhaps temper some of that optimism. For starters, it's going to be extremely difficult to lift zero COVID policies entirely, as our China team have pointed out. We might get some relaxation in the rules around the edges, but until there's a fundamental shift and acceleration in vaccinations, it's going to be difficult to relinquish those policies altogether. What's more, even when you do, even if you are able to relax zero COVID, it's not entirely clear that that's going to be a huge boost to China's economy, at least in the short term. Remember that in the US and in Europe, once we had lifted lockdowns and learned to kind of live with COVID, if you like, shifted to the learn to live with COVID phase, we got another wave of infections and that contributed to worker absences. Now, in the case of China, one of the big success stories, despite the the failure to roll out vaccines and and these periodic huge surges in infections, is they basically kept the factories open. They've kept the supply side of the economy, at least in manufacturing, going. So I think it's possible that if we were to get a relaxation of zero COVID, you could get some signs of kind of worker absences, illnesses because of new ways of infection as China learns to live with the virus. And of course, one of the things we've not had really to any great extent over the past six months has been big problems in supply chains. The supply chains issues have started to ease really since the middle of this year. I think it's possible. One of the things that's not being talked about is that another wave of infections and worker absences could lead to supply chain pressures emanating once again from China. Even if reopening and learning to live with COVID and relaxing zero COVID policies goes smoothly, I still think there's huge challenges facing China's economy. The property sector we've talked about in the past, it's about 20% of China's economy. That's facing both a cyclical and a structural downturn. And of course, China was the huge beneficiary of this shift from services consumption to goods consumption during the pandemic within the advanced world. We saw a huge surge in its, its goods exports. That's now starting to unwind as consumption patterns normalize, inventories are rebuilt along supply chains, and ultimately advanced economies, China's main export markets, slide into recession. So even if the authorities do everything right and they, you know, in terms of increasing this vaccine coverage so that enough of the populace, particularly the elderly, do get jabbed and the government is in a position to reopen on a meaningful basis, it, it doesn't mean that China's economy is is out of the woods, does it? We've got this view on China that is long-term bearish. And it's worth noting it was published in 2018, long before the pandemic hit. 
Yes, I think the consensus view on China over the long term is what you might describe as the kind of Asian century view that there is this inexorable shift in the gravity of the global economy towards Asia and towards China in particular. Now, we've pushed back against that idea on a couple of grounds. One is that China's demographics are pretty horrific. And in fact, we're at the point now where the, the working age population is starting to shrink and there's no signs that that's going to get any better anytime soon. But more importantly, the outlook for productivity growth in China is particularly poor. China's obviously had a huge surge in productivity over the past two decades as a result of moving workers from the land into factories, integrated into global supply chains. Globalization has played a huge role in that. Government-driven infrastructure spending and investment spending has played a huge role too in building out the capital stock of the, the economy. But we're at the point now where China's incomes are kind of 25% of those in the US, perhaps a bit more. And, and, and this is the point where the market needs to do more in terms of organizing and distributing resources within economies. Yet, China is increasingly centralizing its economic model. More power is being invested in the center rather than allowing the market to do work in terms of allocating resource. So I think the legacy of overinvestment and the legacy of centralization in China's economy is going to be one of much weaker productivity growth over the coming decades. So you put that together with demographic headwinds, and I think it is likely that potential GDP growth in China is going to get as low as 2%. We've had this long-term view for a while by, by the end of this decade. It feels a bit prosaic to go from these extraordinary risks that people are taking to publicly demonstrate in Xi Jinping's China about zero COVID to, to UK house prices. But yesterday we had these nationwide November data and they were pretty shocking in their own way, weren't they? Yeah, you can't stop the Brits talking about house prices, no matter what's going on in the global economy. And yes, the, 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 we had the nationwide data in, in the UK on Thursday this week. And of course, this came in the month after the catastrophic mini-budget under the former Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng and, and Prime Minister Liz Truss. So the, the gilt market was in meltdown and mortgage rates were spiking. So I wouldn't expect us to see a repeat of these kind of scale of price falls over the, the coming months, but it does illustrate the risks in the housing market. We've been saying 12% peak to trough fall in prices in the UK over the next year or so. Well, we've had some of that already now, and there's more of that to come. And of course, it's not just the UK. We've got housing price falls in our forecast in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Sweden. So these markets where we've seen prices bid up and supported by extremely low nominal interest rates and negative real interest rates, now, now those vulnerabilities are, are starting to come to the fore. And I, I suspect we're going to see house prices globally come down quite a long way over the next 12 months, perhaps a bit more than people are expecting. Yeah, it was interesting. Andrew Wishart, who leads our housing coverage, was on this client briefing yesterday. And it, it was a bit worrying when he talked about how data like this, which shows such a big price adjustment with, with mortgage rates where they are, could point to an even bigger price fall ahead. And as you say, we're forecasting 12% peak to trough falls. We have spoken before about financial stability issues, and this question did come up on the client briefing. Whether an unwinding of prices at the scale that, that we're talking about raises the risk of a sort of global financial crisis style hit to the financial system and then by extension to, to the economy? Yes, this is the big question. And if you look simply at the increase in interest rates that we've had, it's been the most aggressive monetary policy tightening cycle in four decades. There's further falls in the house prices coming down the track. So I think there's going to be some pressure in the banking system but crucially, the banking system itself is better regulated than was the case in 2008. Mortgage lending in particular looks less risky. Banks are better capitalized. 
So there's some buffers there. So if you look at the Bank of England stress tests in the case of the UK, and, and frankly, our, our own analysis and research too, I think the major institutions should be able to bear and withstand the scale of price falls that we're talking about. Obviously, risks exist. One is that we see bigger price falls than we are anticipating, perhaps precipitated by even bigger downturns in real economies than we are forecasting. Another is that there are risks in the shadow banking sector, which by definition is, of course, shadowy and very difficult to to get a grasp on. But in the conventional banking sector, in kind of commercial uh, and, and retail banks, they look on much better footing now, much sounder footing than was the case kind of 15 years ago. That was Neil Shearing talking about China's zero COVID policy and the latest UK house price data. Now, one of the more curious recent episodes in the global economy was when the Ever Given cargo ship got stuck in the Suez Canal in March last year. For some, it was a metaphor of what was happening with shipping costs, which were surging at a record clip on the back of the pandemic's arrival. But the Ever Given was finally freed, and in recent months, that surge in shipping costs has reversed. Our global team has been looking at what's been happening to costs and what that might mean for inflation. Here's a discussion between Simon McAdam and Leah Fahi from the team. And Simon begins with some scene setting, explaining the factors that initially pushed prices so high. So if you look, go back to 2020, when we, the world went into lockdowns in the first half of the year, several things were happening. And one of those things was that there was a shift to working from home. And that meant that there was an incredible surge in demand for goods, not just goods, but particularly traded goods. So if you think about what the average Western consumer was requiring working from home equipment, such as laptops, electronics and furniture and so on, uh, much of which are imported goods. And not just imported goods, but imported goods specifically that are mainly manufactured in Asia as well. So you had this big shift in trade flows to Asia being a big exporter of these sort of working from home goods. Now, this just wasn't anticipated by shipping companies. It wasn't anticipated by manufacturers. I mean, what normally happens in a global recession is that goods spending gets walloped. You know, goods spending on services is traditionally relatively stable. Uh, I think I think I'm right in saying that services spending as the percentage of disposable incomes in the global financial crisis you know, it fell marginally, but really the sort of a big hit uh, came on the good side of things in terms of consumer spending. And I suppose that was the reasonable expectation going into the pandemic and lockdowns. Except it was a pandemic and a lockdown. Except it was a pandemic and a lockdown. And it was exactly the opposite thing happened. And there was this unprecedented surge in demand, not just because of you know, the nature of lockdown meant people needed these goods, but also the fact that I think people were, I mean, you've got to cast your mind back, that I think we were all surprised how quickly and how forcefully governments acted in terms of supporting incomes. Yeah. Whether it was the, you know, the furlough schemes in Europe, which you know, was the predominant method of supporting household incomes back in, in Europe, where, you know, in contrast to the United States, where there was obviously a bigger dependence on, on checks, just basically giving people free money. So either way, household incomes were supported. So people had the an incredible willingness to buy traded goods yeah. that people hadn't really thought through. And also they had the ability to do so, which was a greater ability than anyone had anticipated because governments acted forcefully and quickly. So if you combine that together, there was actually a surge in demand for traded goods. But because all the shipping companies had not anticipated this, initially in the pandemic, in, um, in the wake of lockdowns, there was a collapse in orders for for new ships, collapse mm-hmm. in orders for containers. A lot of production was mothballed because it just wasn't expected to be needed. And I think what was made even worse was the fact that 
because there was this change, and as I said earlier, there was a change in the sort of the flow of global trade. So you had a disproportionate amount of global exports shifted to Asia because they were by and large exporting these manufactured goods over to Western consumers. So if you have a lot of sort of unidirectional trade to an unusual degree, what you end up having is a lot of containers full of goods leaving Asia, coming over to Europe and the United States, offloading the goods, and then you've got yourself a load of empty containers. Now, right. ordinarily, we would see those containers being filled up and sent back in the opposite direction. But because this was very much a one-way street, it meant that you had you know, the demand pressures in global shipping were exacerbated by an imbalance in trade flows such that you had a deficit of containers over in Asia and a surplus in Europe and America. And initially, throughout 2020, the shipping companies weren't prepared to ship a whole container ship full of empty containers across the world. I mean, they do do this, but used to a modest degree. But back then, they were because they just weren't in a position to think it was reasonable to, to ship a load of empties across the other side of the world. Eventually, as time went on, they learned and they did start recycling, almost like globally recycling these, these containers. So that is a demand surge. You had an imbalance of containers, which meant that, uh, that we had to wait longer to be able to ship goods over from Asia. Right. And I guess there's also a bit of a supply issue going on in another sense, right? It wasn't just that lockdowns was affecting people's demand for goods. But I mean, I think China's the one that springs to mind straight away. But these sweeping lockdowns were definitely having some sort of effects on, on uh, ports' abilities to get containers full of goods to ship, surely. Yeah, well, exactly. So you had labor shortages sort of along... It wasn't just in shipping, it was also the inland distribution networks as well. Right, so you think of, of all of the stages of the logistical network, from the warehouse to the trucks, uh, taking the goods to the ports, and then the port handlers putting the things on the on the ships, mm -hmm. and then the ships having the sufficient crew. So yeah, there was a there was definitely a a, a labour problem, um, both in terms of cross border travel, and in terms of illness and sickness and people not being able to turn up. Right, And of course, even for the people who were able to cross the border, even the people who were fit to work, you had then social distancing, which in a job like loading up trucks and loading up ships... As slows you can, everything down. Well, as you can imagine, it slows things <laughs> down. So port turnover times really surged. And there was a huge jump in congestion at ports and anchorages around the world as well. So the whole sort of global logistical network just became clogged up. Mm-hmm. At the same time as everybody wants all their furniture and their laptops and so on. So this combination of surge in demand and restrictions on the supply side are a classic recipe for prices to be surging. And of course, they did indeed surge to unprecedented levels. Well, I guess, Simon, you've talked a lot about what caused shipping costs to surge and why that was kind of the catalyst as to why as a macroeconomist we're interested in them in the first place. But that's not really the story anymore, is it? We've seen almost equally large falls in shipping costs um, since the peak. Um, and I think on summers, we have them back down to pre-pandemic averages. And it's probably worth going into a little bit about what has caused this fall and what we expect to see um, in shipping costs in the coming months? Yeah, so I mean, the surge in the shipping costs were caused by those that supply-demand imbalance that I've already described. And, and basically, the flip side of that is true on the way back down. So yeah. on the demand side, um, we have ordered all of our lockdown goods, you know, all the things that we bought during the pandemic, that would be uh, furniture and laptops and so on. Those sorts of spending patterns 
of elevated spending on those particular types of heavily traded goods plateaued a while back and uh, in some cases have been falling outright. Yeah, well, you did you did mention that generally in recessions we see a fall in the proportion of people's incomes that's spent on on goods. And I think it does look like now what we are going into is a more typical recession than that which we saw during the pandemic. Yeah, that, that's, so that's, not, it's not just a normalization, is it? It's it's kind of a move in the opposite direction that we're expecting to yeah, see. Yeah, absolutely. So this this is the thing. There are two points going on here, aren't mm-hmm. there? There's the sort of in the background, almost regardless of the sort of where we are in the business cycle and where we're heading into. Regardless, there's this sort of structural trend, which yeah. is that we did see a big change in spending patterns. And now there is scope for that to normalize. Right. And then on top of that, that's been compounded by the fact that the global economy has been slowing over the course of 2022. Mm-hmm. We've been you know, banging the drum that we're going into a global recession in 2023. And as you're, you're right in saying that you know, typically, as, we were, as people had initially expected in 2020, people think that going into a recession, that's going to be particularly bad for good spending. And I think that is going to be more, more the case yes. now, not least because we've got surge in, in interest rates. Right, which is kind of driving this this recession. So there's even more of a risk that, or not even a risk, an expectation that that goods demand is going to fall quite substantially. Yeah, because durable goods are some of the most you know, interest sensitive areas of spending. Right. You don't take out a loan to go on holiday, do you? But to buy your washing machine. Yes, exactly. So consumer credit is used for whether it be autos or washing machines, white goods generally. Mm-hmm. And those final goods themselves are traded heavily, but also, of course, the components going into those final goods right, as well. Of course. So it's a whole supply chain knock on it, all from higher interest rates bearing down on people's demand for these types of goods. Mm-hmm. So, yep. So on the demand side, we've got this normalization going on. We've also got the global economy slowing and entering a global recession due to higher interest rates and higher inflation, eroding people's uh, the real value of their incomes. And then on the supply side, of course, we had in 2021, uh, you know, what came with the great reopening of economies was relaxation, of course, outside China. And, and in large parts of the world, at least, we saw a relaxation of social distancing measures. Mm-hmm. We saw COVID illnesses being less of a drag in terms of the logistical network, so right. less acute shortages at warehouses and along the, tr- along the truckers and for port staff and crew rotations, all of these problems that we've seen in 2020 and into 2021 begun to alleviate in the second half of 2021. So some of these sort of bottle, supply bottlenecks started to, mm-hmm. to, to improve. So again, so a combination of a weak demand on the one hand and improvements in supply on the other have allowed for this big fall in shipping costs. And as you say, some of these measures are getting back to where they were before the pandemic. I think in particular, the spot freight rates from Asia to the West Coast of North America. Yeah, that's I right. I don't, don't think the others have fallen quite as much, but they have fallen by, you know, by between 50 and 80%, yeah. that sort of magnitude. I think we might on average be about two times that of pre-pandemic levels at the minute. So there still is scope for them to fall further. Yeah. So, I mean, we're not shipping analysts, of course, so we don't forecast shipping costs, and freight rates and so on. Yeah. But from what we can tell, it seems reasonable to suspect that shipping costs will continue to fall in the near term. This normalization, whether freight rates on all shipping routes normalize back to pre-pandemic levels or not, is yet to be seen. But I think what we can say, I think the, the way that it's stacking up is that it's unlikely that we'll see a renewed increase, so right. a renewed sustained increase in shipping costs. So I'm not saying that you know, we don't have a strong view that they're going to continue falling, but I think we do have a reasonable view that it's, it, 
the factors just aren't there. The stars are not aligned for an increase in shipping costs on a sustained basis uh, right. beyond, beyond this year. I guess on that note, I do have a bit of a question that I'm sure some of our listeners might be thinking too. Um, one of the big things we've been seeing in headlines recently is the COVID situation, which is worsening by the day in China, it seems. And you've got more and more cities going into lockdown. It looks like there might have to be a national lockdown at some point based on how things are going. Given the this whole increase in shipping costs we saw was on... Asian outbound routes in the first place and had a lot to do with supply chain issues, which came from things like lockdowns and and issues with um, labor shortages at, at ports and all that. Shouldn't that play some role in keeping up, if not driving up, shipping costs in the future? Why are we still expecting them to fall? Yes, a really good point, actually. It's, it's obviously, it's very topical right now with the, I mean, we're recording this on the 29th of November, so we were just confronted with the, the protests that we've seen across parts of China over the weekend um, in relation to the lockdown measures and the latest outbreak of COVID there. And it once again, it serves as a reminder that there is that ever-present risk, while zero COVID is the, is the policy of the day in China, of renewed supply chain disruptions. Right. So let's just think back to earlier this year. March, April time when we had the first Omicron outbreak in China. And that led to, the, of course, the big lockdown in Shanghai and the whole region. I think the world's third largest port being shut down completely yeah. um, as a result of the lockdowns there. But it is worth saying that that did not cause shipping costs to rise. It kept falling. You know, the big picture was that Chinese exports fell. It did have you know, those lockdowns back in March and April. They did have a material impact on, on trade volumes. We can see that in the data but maybe just not as big as people had been expecting. And it was relatively short-lived. So even though one of the biggest ports was shut down, other ports partially made up for that um, in other parts of the country. And on top of that, you've got to think about what the context of those lockdowns is. You see, when you had big lockdowns in China in 2020, that was in a context of people demanding an awful lot of goods, right? Mm -hmm. a surge in demand. And in 2021, Again, the demand environment there was one of a rebound of economic activity because the world was, you know, much of the world was reopening. But what's the context today? The context today is a slowing world economy. We've talked about some of the headwinds on goods demand. So if there are disruptions to supply in China, I doubt that they're going to have the same sort of inflationary effects through supply chains, through shipping costs, as right. you might expect. Yeah, and I guess there's, there's the added factor that this is now not a new thing in China, right? And they're, as much as lockdowns obviously do impede a lot of production and, and um, shipping and all that, they are getting accustomed to dealing with having these restrictions um, and having them affect their productivity less. And I know in, in these recent lockdowns, the manufacturing sector at least has been spared for most of the restrictions that the general population has been put under. So factors like that might, might help. Yeah, the measures are targeted and if businesses, I mean, you know, Businesses in China have been used to zero COVID policy now for a long time, and mm -hmm. they will obviously have gained some clout in how to um, manage uh, COVID restrictions to some extent and how they can work around that. But it is worth also stressing there is a, clearly a risk that yeah. the COVID situation in China just gets out of control. 
Yeah. And, and that will have a substantial, well, at, at least a notable impact yes, on that, shipping costs. Absolutely. Because then you're talking about sort of a Wuhan style national lockdown. As I said at the very outset, traditionally, as macroeconomists, shipping costs don't really feature in our analysis of inflation because it just hasn't been big enough to move the dial. And given that the, the magnitude of the moves we've seen, you know, eightfold increases on the way up, sort mm-hmm. of 75, 80% falls on the way down, perhaps this is, this is actually macroeconomically significant and is is actually something worth mentioning in the inflation debate and thinking about the inflation outlook for 2023. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I don't want to pretend that it's going to be shipping costs that end the inflationary problems across the world, because as much as they do have an effect, it's not quite of that magnitude. But we have actually been doing some calculations and looking into the numbers and trying to gauge what kind of an impact this increase in shipping costs had on inflation on the way up to have a bit more of an understanding of how it might drag on inflation in the coming months. So I guess what's really crucial to understand here is that this is an issue of how much price increases get passed through. Um, So if there is a big increase in shipping costs, we need to understand how much that increases costs for importers and then how much of um, their costs are then passed through to consumer prices. and obviously, this is a bit of a tricky thing to estimate. And on top of that, there is really no direct measure of global shipping costs either. So it puts us in a bit of a tricky position in terms of coming up with hard and fast numbers that tell you exactly the impact that these increases in shipping costs have had. But we can look at some numbers to get a good idea um, and and make some estimates. Um, we estimated that global shipping costs increased by about 260%. And Shipping costs make up about 10% of the value of imported goods. And if that was fully faster, it would boost consumer prices by about 1.5%. But actually, based on the numbers we looked at, we saw that half of the increase in prices was absorbed when being passed on to import prices. And then if we assume that there's there's kind of the same story when import prices are getting passed through to consumer prices, um, we estimated that the total increase in shipping costs we saw would have boosted global inflation by about 0.3 percentage points. Okay, so higher shipping costs, we say boosted inflation maybe at the global level by about 0.3 percentage points on the way up. What yeah. about on the way down? What can we expect sort of into 2023? Right. Well, first of all, it went up by about 0.3 percentage points, right? So if shipping costs were just to stay flat from their peak, we'd see 0.3 percentage points of inflation just drop out from that. But on top of that, we've seen really huge falls in shipping costs since then. So not only are we having this this baseline 0.3% dropout, but we should, we're expecting at least another probably 0.2% to to fall out of inflation from this fall in shipping costs that we're that we're expecting. Um so I guess at the global le- level what we should see is is shipping costs contributing to about a 0.5% fall in inflation. And just for the context, I mean global inflation at the moment is running at about 8%. Yeah. on our measure. Now for context, before the pandemic that was running at about 3 3.5% on our on our economic forecasts, we've got global inflation coming back down to that sort of three, three and a half percent level over the next 18 months. Yeah. So we're looking at maybe a sort of five percentage point disinflation over the next 12 to 18 months. And what you've suggested is that 0.5 percentage points of that could Should... be attributed to shipping. So yeah, so it's, not, it's not the 
the key factor in driving it down, but it will have a substantial effect and it will be something definitely worth keeping your eye on and watching out for in the coming months um, because it will play at least a, a notable role. And that's it for this episode. All the research referenced, including our latest analysis on zero COVID and core inflation and Simon and Leah's work on shipping costs can be found on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the weekly briefing on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. But until next week, goodbye.